Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Kreger. I am an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is ICU-EDU. Let's talk about reframing shock. This is going to be a different approach to shock physiology that I have dubbed the three pressures approach. Why are we talking about this? Well, let me tell you about a critical care consult that I recently received. This was a 56-year-old gentleman with a history of HIV who came in with a fever complaining of shortness of breath. Pretty high fever, like 102. When he came in, he was hypotensive to 80 over 40. His lactate was 3, and his chest x-ray had multifocal infiltrates. He got 2 liters of fluid, and blood pressure wasn't improving. And they called me, and they were like, look, you know, he maybe even blood pressure got a little worse after those 2 liters of fluids. But we did a bedside echo, and he has good biventricular function. But now he's continuing to get worse. We started some more fluid, but he's now maxed out on norepi, and we did a repeat lactate, and it's now 6. And they kind of had this moment when they were like, okay, we did all the things, now what? And I've had this now what moment with many patients many times. And it was this now what moment where, yeah, I've checked off the boxes. I've done all the things I was supposed to do. And the patient is still not getting better. And I realized that I wasn't using an approach to shock that would get me past this where the sidewalk ends moment. So there's the question of when we are confronted by a difficult, complex clinical problem that we don't feel like we have the tools currently to solve, how do we go about improving our ability to solve that problem? And I think often we like to go to just use a fancier technology, right? There's got to be a device somebody's making that'll tell me how to solve this problem. Or maybe we just need to do more research, like how every study ends with, and more research needs to be done. Maybe once that more research needs to be done is done, we'll have the answer. Or maybe we just need the experts to sit down and come up with a new algorithm or guideline for us, and that'll give us the answer. And we like all these things. We like the idea of more algorithms, more research, more fancy technology, because it feels secure. This idea of this illusion of psychological order that we are provided by seemingly precise tools, an algorithm we can follow, a device that gives us a number that we can say yes, no, or a paper that just tells us what to do. We like algorithms and research and devices for a reason. The problem is that hasn't yet solved this particular problem for me, the problem of how I approach shock. And I think there's something else that we need to add to all of those things to really solve this problem. That is, we need to learn to think better. We need to improve our physiologic reasoning abilities. And we don't spend a lot of time doing that or working on it or talking about it. I mean, we talk about physiology in med school, but how much time do we really spend later delving into the physiology of things? Not that much. Especially if you think about the amount of time that we spend doing journal club and reading the latest guidelines and looking at the new papers and learning about the new technologies. We spend a lot of time doing that compared to the amount of time that we really spend learning to think about the physiology better. Now, why is this relevant to shock? Well, the problem is that this traditional model of shock, there are four categories, hypovolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. That traditional model just didn't really give me the tools to deal with patients like this. Why? Because that model has you just stick your patient in the box. Do they go in the cardiogenic box, the distributive box, the hypovolemic box, or the obstructive box? But that whole approach makes some big assumptions. Like, for example, any given patient's only going to fit into one box at a time. Or, more importantly, that whatever precipitated the patient's shock is currently the primary driver of their shock physiology. 
Furthermore, I feel like these four categories haven't really given us a good way at the bedside to try and figure out which category of shock the patient's in. And so that's why sort of people came up with this pipes pump tank model of shock. And this, I think, is a much more useful way of thinking about it at the bedside, because what it does is it uses ultrasound to help us figure out our particular patient's physiology at the bedside. The problem is, at the end of the day, ultrasound is simply a tool for gathering data. And if you take that data, and the only way you have now to organize said data is to put it back in the same old boxes, you haven't really gotten yourself anywhere. And this isn't just philosophical. This has management implications. Why? Because those four categories of shock have specific management strategies. If it's hypovolemic shock, you give volume. Distributive shock, you give pressors. Cardiogenic shock, you give inotropes. And obstructive shock, you decompress whatever's causing the obstruction. Similarly, our pipes pump tank model. If it's a pipes problem, you give pressors. If it's a pump problem, you give inotropes. And if it's a tank problem, you give volume. And the problem with that is that once you've done all those things, now what? That is when you end up with your now what moments because you did all the things. What else do you do? And this is how I got to the idea that we need to reframe our mental model of shock physiology. And I think the way to reframe it to be more successful with our complex shock patients is reframing it around the idea of perfusion pressure. Now, framing your shock physiology around the idea of perfusion pressure, this is not a novel concept. Mind not blown here, I didn't come up with this. We've been talking about this for decades and decades and decades. The problem is framing shock physiology around multiple different pressures adding up to perfusion pressure hasn't quite caught on yet for a reason. Why? It's because the physiology is usually presented to us in graphs that look something like this. And very, very few people can apply that at the bedside, me included. I had to figure out another way to think about this that wasn't that graph to figure out how to make this functional at the bedside. So what this reframing shock series of talks is about is not so much saying, aha, I have come across the concept of perfusion pressure, no, we're already there. But really, how do we make that deeper understanding of shock physiology and multiple pressures available to us at the bedside? So really what this lecture is about is heuristic physiology and advanced simplification, as I like to call it, of complex shock concepts. So we are going to try and turn those concepts into something we can use at the bedside. The first thing, as I frequently talk about, to understand is that shock is not about hypotension. Shock is about hypoperfusion. And this idea that blood pressure and tissue perfusion are somehow inextricably linked, they're locked together and they always move together. So if your blood pressure goes up, your tissue perfusion goes up. If your blood pressure goes down, your tissue perfusion goes down. It turns out that is not the case. These two things do not always march together. And it's not actually the blood pressure we care about, right? It's the tissue perfusion. That is where the magic happens. That is actually what we're trying to target here, not blood pressure. So if we can all agree that it's actually tissue perfusion we're trying to target, not blood pressure, what's with our blood pressure obsession? Like, we really, really are focused on blood pressure. And, you know, even if you're calling this up to an ICU attending and you're like, I need to admit my patient for shock, and they're like, what's the blood pressure? And you're like, it's okay. Most of the time, even though we know this in theory, we find it really hard to apply in practice. And I think part of it is this thing. 
You know, the measuring what's important, not making important what you can measure. Because blood pressure is great. We can measure blood pressure. We can make nice definitions around blood pressure. We can say, if the map is 67, the patient is not in shock. If the map, on the other hand, is 64, they're in shock. We can write nice algorithms. We can say, okay, uh, if I am titrating presser, I want you to titrate to a map of 65. Done. You can't really say... Let's titrate to perfusion of the tissues. That's not really work. So there's some very functional reasons that we prefer blood pressure over tissue perfusion. It's easy to measure. It's easy to work with. But I actually think that our blood pressure obsession runs deeper than that. I think it also has to do with we're human. And humans in general are very forward-centric creatures. It's like when you're on an airplane and at the announcements at the beginning of the flight, they say things like, the nearest exit may be behind you. This sounds like a dumb, obvious thing to say, but why do they need to say that? Well, because most of us, that doesn't occur to us. Not really, not at first, because humans are very forward-centric. And what that means in the world of physiology is that our hemodynamic worldview tends to be very forward-centric, very map-centric, and very LVEF-centric. Because we are really focused on the forward pressure. That is what seems to us to be obvious that we care about. The problem is that if you only think about the forward pressure in this complex system, you're missing a lot of the complexity behind the system. And that complexity, it turns out, is important. It's like this. Let's say that you're trying to push a heavy rock. And you're like, wow, this rock is really heavy. I'm having trouble pushing it forward. Maybe I just need to push harder. But then you're like, but wait a minute, there's another guy on the other side of the rock pushing the rock in the other direction. That's not cool. But maybe instead of me pushing harder, I just got to get the other guy who's pushing back to stop doing that. And so this idea that, yeah, it's about the forward pressure, but the back pressure is irrelevant. And when we're talking about perfusion pressure, it's the forward pressure minus the back pressure. Now, a lot of the time we're like, okay, that may be theoretically true, that's fine, but does it really matter in real life? Does it matter to the patient in front of me? Because the way we think about it, the forward pressure is so much higher than the back pressure that the back pressure is kind of negligible. Like if you think about your map of, I don't know, 70 versus your CVP of, I don't know, 8, does the CVP of 8 really matter in this forward-to-back pressure algorithm? So there's face validity that we don't need to care that much about the back pressure. It's dwarfed by the forward pressure. The problem is that's not actually really true. So let's go to our diagram of perfusion. And let's talk about a diagram that um, I learned during med school, then completely forgot, because at the time I was like, this can't possibly be important. Then later I was like, no, just kidding. Actually, this is kind of important. And it maps out the different levels of the circulatory system, starting with the aorta down to the arteries, arterioles, capillaries, all the way through the venules, veins, and back to the vena cava. And it looks at the mean pressure at each different level of the circulatory system. Now, again, remember, the only thing we care about is right here in the capillaries. That is where the magic happens. That is where we need our perfusion pressure gradient to favor tissue perfusion as opposed to not tissue perfusion. Now, the key thing about this diagram is the biggest drop in pressure. If you start in the aorta, the biggest drop in pressure that you get is right before the magic happens. The pressure that's going directly into those capillaries, that's when you have this pressure drop. So if you're talking about the perfusion pressure that's going into the capillaries, you're no longer talking about a mean pressure of, say, 100. No. That's the pressure in the aorta. If you're talking about the perfusion pressure gradient and the forward pressure driving that gradient, 
Oh, actually, all of a sudden now, it's not that much different than your back pressure. Because now we're talking about, okay, on the forward end of that perfusion pressure gradient, we're talking about mean pressures of more like maybe 20, not 70. And all of a sudden, we're comparing 20 to maybe 8 with our CVP, not 70. All of a sudden, we're like, wait a minute, my forward and back pressures actually aren't that different in the pressure gradient where it actually matters. So maybe instead of all getting super excited about forward pressure, we should get a little bit more excited about back pressure. In addition, it allows us to answer, or ask at least, interesting clinical questions like, is my problem insufficient forward pressure or excessive back pressure? But there's one other pressure that we need to think about, in addition to our forward and back pressures, and that is our external pressure. So the idea here is, okay, I'm trying to push the rock forward. I've managed to convince the guy who's trying to push it backwards that he should stop doing that, but now a really fat guy comes and sits on top of my rock, and that is making it harder to push it forward. So maybe instead of pushing harder, I should just convince the guy who's sitting on top of my rock to stop doing that. External pressure. Now, we all know we're all familiar with shock due to increased in external pressure because it usually shows up lights blazing, cardiac tamponade, intention pneumothorax. You cannot miss it, right? What is the problem with cardiac tamponade, intention pneumothorax? The problem is not that we lack forward pressure. The problem is that external pressure is overwhelming all of our forward pressure. So what do we do to fix this shock state? Well, we don't give them pressors. We decompress the external pressure. Now, cardiac tamponade and tension pneumothorax are when external pressure shows up in a blaze of lights, and it's really obvious. But there's also a contribution of external pressure that is tiny but mighty, and that is tissue hydrostatic pressure, right? The external pressure of your tissues that they're placing on that perfusion pressure gradient at the level of tissue perfusion. Because again, if you're remembering that the pressures we're talking about for our forward to back pressure gradient are more on the order of 10 to 20 versus 70 to 80, now all of a sudden the tissue hydrostatic pressure becomes a little bit more significant. All right, now we're going to talk about using our forward, backward, and external pressures to create a three pressures physiology map. To make this model workable at the bedside, we're going to need to superimpose these pressures on a simplified version of the circulatory system. Now, as we're doing this, we need to keep in mind that the goal here is not actually to get a PhD in physiology. The goal here is to construct a mental model that helps you understand what's happening with your patient. That is really what we're trying to do, not write a physiologically precise dissertation on something. We just want to do better at the bedside. So we talked about how our perfusion pressure is our forward pressure minus our back pressure. And I think this is the most functional way to think about hemodynamics because it's not about blood pressure. It's about perfusion pressure. Or in more physiologic terms, your mean perfusion pressure is equal to your MAP minus your CVP. Now, we could all probably reproduce this equation when we need to write it down on a test, but we have a lot of trouble applying it at the bedside. Because while this is sort of the final common pathway of macrohemodynamics, there are a lot of variables in between that determine these two things. And so knowing this equation doesn't really help me all that much at the bedside to try and figure out the specific hemodynamic situation of the patient in front of me, and more importantly, help inform the management of that patient. Which is why we're going to break this down onto our map of the circulatory system. So we are going to start with 
we need to perfuse the tissues, right? The whole goal of this system is to get a robust perfusion pressure gradient across your capillaries. And now we are going to start with our final common pathway, our MAP and our CVP. And we're going to first focus on the MAP because we all know MAP, we're comfy with MAP. Let's start there. Your MAP is your cardiac output times your systemic vascular resistance, your SVR, right? That's the equation for MAP. So we are saying that your LV needs to put out some blood for everybody else to work with. Now, cardiac output is measured in liters per minute, right? The LV is going to put out some certain volume over a certain amount of time. But now we run into a key concept that we have to understand and really internalize about hemodynamic physiology, which is... Volume doesn't count unless it's pressurized. Your circulatory system cannot use unpressurized volume. I mean, this is why we talk about blood pressure, not blood volume. Filling pressures, not filling volumes, right? Volume that isn't pressurized is useless to you. So, okay, the LV is going to put out some amount of volume, but we need to pressurize it. And so your systemic vascular resistance is how we pressurize that volume. Your SVR takes that number of liters per minute of cardiac output the LV is handing it and makes it usable volume by pressurizing it. But we have to realize that actually our SVR can be a double-edged sword here because the main component of LV afterload, which is the back pressure to LV cardiac output, is SVR. SVR is the major component of this. Now, fortunately, the LV is actually pretty good at dealing with this. And if you look at the LV and how it deals with afterload in terms of stroke volume, how does it deal with that back pressure? It does pretty well, actually. So it turns out the left ventricle is built to do this. And what you'll see is that if you increase your afterload from point A to point B, the stroke volume that the LV is putting out won't actually decrease that much. It takes a lot of afterload for the LV to significantly drop its stroke volume. The LV is built to do this. And so that's why it's sort of okay. It's built to deal with that kind of SVR. Now let's break down what the LV cardiac output is. So your cardiac output is your heart rate times your stroke volume. Let's talk about our stroke volume. Now, when we think about stroke volume physiology, we can't talk about it without talking about preload. And this is the graph that I would say, if myself included and all the rest of us remember one physiology graph from med school, it's probably this one, the Starling curve, which is looking at left ventricular stroke volume versus preload. And basically the idea is this, that there is the steep part of the Starling curve and the flat part of the Starling curve. And if you increase preload and you're on the steep part of the curve and you increase your preload from point A to point B, the stroke volume of the left ventricle will increase. Once you're on the flat portion of this curve and you increase your preload at that point, eh, your stroke volume doesn't increase that much. And this effect is magnified when we have a sick heart. So if we have a patient with decreased left ventricular systolic function and we're at the same preload point and we increase that preload, the person with normal LV systolic function may still be on the steep part of that curve and increase their stroke volume, whereas the patient with the sick heart and depressed LV function, not so much. Giving them increased preload will not necessarily increase their stroke volume. But now let's delve a little bit more into the concept of preload. Because we treat preload as if it's a very simple, straightforward thing. We're just like, oh, their preload is low. Cool. Just give some more volume. Turns out it's unfortunately not that simple. In fact, I would say preload is one of the most complicated things to think about. Because why? Well, remember, 
Volume doesn't count unless it's pressurized. Non-pressurized volume is not useful. And this is why we can't just equate preload with the amount of volume being delivered to the system. It's not that simple. We don't talk about filling volumes. What do we talk about? We talk about filling pressures. And it turns out that the relationship between filling pressures and intravascular volume is not completely straightforward. If there was a one-to-one -one linear relationship between these two things, then maybe we could just be like, sure, just give some more volume to increase your preload. But there's not. The relationship is not linear. It looks like this. The best way to understand the relationship between filling pressures and intravascular volume is to imagine you have a water balloon. And let's say that we put 200 cc's of water in our water balloon. The problem is that the water balloon isn't full until 500 cc's. It's going to take 500 cc's of water to fill up our water balloon. So what if we're like, okay, we have a water balloon. It has 200 cc's of water in it. Let's put in a new other 200. Let's make it 400 cc's. Have you increased the pressure in your water balloon by going from 200 to 400 cc's? No, you have not. Why? Because what's creating pressurized volume in that water balloon is the wall tension, and that only happens after you fully expand the water balloon. So it's not until we put in maybe another 200 cc's, now our water balloon has 600 cc's, more than the 500 that it holds. Now, once we pass the point of fully distending our water balloon, now adding volume increases the pressure. Now, if we're going to talk about the circulatory system instead of water balloons, we have names for this. The unpressurized volume we call unstressed volume. The pressurized volume we call stressed volume. And increasing the intravascular volume until it's under pressure increases your unstressed volume, but that's not usable volume to you. The only usable volume is the stressed volume. So this is what this looks like in a normal patient. But let's say now we are going to have a patient and we're going to vasodilate them. What happens to this curve when we vasodilate the patient? Well, what happens is we shift it to the right. And so now what that means is instead of our water balloon being full at 500 cc's, it now takes 700 cc's to fill that water balloon. So what's going to happen? Okay, well, we start with our water balloon with 200 cc's. Now we put in 400. Now we're at 600 and we're still not increasing our stressed volume, our pressurized volume, because now we've stretched the water balloon to not be full until 700 cc's. And it's only at that point now at, you know, 800 cc's, a thousand, that we start getting increased pressure when we increase the volume. So what we've basically done when we vasodilate a patient is we have shifted some of their volume that had been stressed to unstressed volume. And these are the patients that drive you crazy. When a patient is profoundly vasodilated and vasoplegic, and you're like, I am pouring volume into this patient, I'm giving them more and more and more volume, and their blood pressure is just not really getting better, what am I doing wrong? Well, what you might be doing wrong is they're profoundly vasoplegic. They have this massive, massive sink of unstressed volume, and you can put a bunch of volume in there, but until it's pressurized, it doesn't count. Which is why what you probably actually want to do is shrink the water balloon back from its 700cc current self to its previous 500cc self. So, issue number one with filling pressures is preload problem number one, insufficient stressed volume. Not insufficient volume, but insufficient stressed volume. So that's preload problem number one. But let's say we're good. We're delivering sufficient amounts of stressed volume to our right heart. Turns out, there's another little thing that we have to pay attention to, which is the following. 
There is this thing, it's called the right side of the heart, that is in between the volume being delivered to the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart. And the right ventricle needs to cooperate with us in order to deliver that to the left ventricle. So you deliver some filling pressures to the right side of your heart, and the forward pressure that takes those pressures from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart, that is our right ventricular cardiac output. And the left ventricle can't do anything until the right ventricle gives it something to work with. It's sort of like if you're in an assembly line and the guy before you in the assembly line is really, really slow, you can't put out more stuff until he gives you whatever you need, right? So we're very dependent on our right ventricle to hand off that volume to the left ventricle. So our forward pressure here is our right ventricular cardiac output. But what is our back pressure? Our back pressure is our right ventricular afterload. Now, here is the deal. We talked about with our left ventricle how it deals with afterload quite well, how the left ventricle does not drop its stroke volume significantly even when confronted with pretty significantly increased afterload. The right ventricle is not like that. Look what happens to the right ventricle when you increase afterload. The right ventricle, if you take afterload and increase it by even a moderate to small amount and you increase it from point A to point B, in the case of the right ventricle, your stroke volume drops precipitously. The right ventricle cannot handle, it's not built to handle afterload in the same way the left ventricle is. And that's a huge determinant of RV function and how much cardiac output it can actually get to the left ventricle. So preload problem number two is that the right ventricle is not delivering. Because even if you deliver appropriate filling pressures to your right ventricle, if the right ventricle either has not enough forward or more often for the right ventricle too much back pressure... It's useless because it can't hand those volumes to the left ventricle and the left ventricle is like, well, I can't do anything. You're not giving me anything to work with. So that is preload problems number one and two. But now we need to ask the question, what is the back pressure in the left heart competing with our preload, our left ventricular preload? And that pressure is our left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Because that preload, okay, so the right ventricle is doing its job. We need to deliver all of this preload to the left ventricle. Great. But there is a back pressure there because we need to deliver that pressure to the left ventricle while it's in diastole. And so that left ventricular in diastolic pressure acts as our back pressure. Now, on a normal heart, on a normal day, this is fine. This is not a big deal. The left ventricular is relatively compliant. We're good. But look what happens when we have a patient with a stiff left ventricle with diastolic dysfunction. So what happens is that their pressure volume curve is really, really steep. So if we then increase our left diastolic volume, what we see is in a normal heart, the pressure doesn't go up that much, but in a patient with diastolic dysfunction, relatively speaking, it goes up a lot. And so diastolic dysfunction patients have a very, very large increase in pressure for a relatively small increase in volume. And that rapid increase in pressure then acts as a back pressure to our LV filling with all that preload. Now, the thing to remember is this. These curves for diastolic dysfunction, they're the same in both directions, right? Okay, so what's the implications of that? Well, okay, if you give a little bit of volume, you get a big change in pressure and your pressure goes up quite a bit. But the same thing happens if you now take away a little bit of volume. So now we take away a little bit of volume. And what's going to happen is that by removing a little bit of volume, our left ventricular diastolic pressure 
drops quite a bit in patients with diastolic dysfunction. And these are the patients that are maddening to fluid resuscitate because you're like, I just can't get this right. I give you a little bit of volume and now you're in pulmonary edema and your blood pressure's through the roof. I take off a little bit of volume and all of a sudden you're profoundly hypotensive. And often these patients get described to me as their blood pressure is really, quote, labile. A lot of the time, it's because they have profound diastolic dysfunction, and that pressure-volume relationship in the left ventricle is very, very steep. So that is the back pressure acting on our preload. Now, all of these forward and back pressures ultimately end up adding up to our right atrial pressure, because the right atrial pressure is important to know about. Why? Because the right atrial pressure is the back pressure competing with our filling pressures. So what does that relationship look like? What is the relationship between right atrial pressure and filling pressures, venous return? What does that relationship look like? Well, it looks something like this. Let's say that we have right atrial pressure A. Now, if we increase our right atrial pressure, if we increase that back pressure relative to our filling pressures, the back pressure is higher, so our venous return is going to drop. So for an increase in right atrial pressure, our venous return is going to drop. Similarly, if you decrease that pressure, our venous return will improve, right? If you now take your right atrial pressure and you drop it, okay, now your venous return goes up. That's how this works. Higher back pressures mean less venous return. Now, this curve looks like this. There's the flat part of the curve. Because what if you increase or decrease your right atrial pressure and you drop it all the way to zero? Well, what happens at zero is everything collapses. You've now taken your water balloon and you've drained it fully. Everything's completely collapsing. And so rather than, you know, your venous return continuing to go up when you hit zero right atrial pressure, that's not what happens. It plateaus because everything's just collapsed. So that's why this graph looks like that. But the most important part of it is just to understand that as our right atrial goes up, it acts as a back pressure to our filling pressures and our venous return to the heart comes down. And now when we add up all of those back pressures minus the forward pressures, now we come to our CVP. We have come full circle. But there's one other component that is really, really important. And that is our one-way valves. Because again, the point of all these pressure gradients is to move things forward, not backwards. So you kind of have this insurance policy, which is you have a bunch of one-way gates that do not let you move backwards. They only let you move things forward. And we're actually very dependent on those one-way gates because if it turns out one of those one-way gates, like our aortic mitral or tricuspid valve, all of a sudden becomes a two-way bidirectional gate, that's a problem. Because, again, the gates, the one-way gates are a backup to our pressure gradients. That they're like, nope, hard stop, you can't go backwards, I'm going to force you to go forwards. But this becomes a problem if they become two-way gates, because once they become a two-way gate, we now become entirely reliant on just a pressure gradient to make sure that our forward flow stays forward, not backwards. So we cannot forget the all-useful one-way valves, our mitral, tricuspid, aortic valve. Our pulmonic valve does the same thing, but for our purposes, it's not as important. All right. We've talked about our forward pressures and our back pressures. Now we need to talk about our external pressures and map them on to our physiology diagram. All right. The first pressure we're going to start with is tissue hydrostatic pressure, because that's the one that is having the most direct effect right there with the map and CVP that's competing with it. And as we said, it's tiny but mighty. 
So we looked at the relationship between preload and stroke volume and cardiac output. Now let's look at the relationship between preload and extravascular fluid, because that's what we really care about in terms of determining the external pressure that our tissue hydrostatic pressure is placing. What is our extravascular fluid? So the relationship between preload and extravascular fluid looks something like this. It is a curve with an inflection point. What does that inflection point mean? Because it's very significant. What it means is that if we take our preload and we increase it from point A to point B, but we're still before the inflection point in that curve, if we're before that inflection point, increasing our preload doesn't really increase our extravascular volume all that much. But once we have increased our preload beyond that inflection point to point C, and now we increase it to point D beyond that inflection point, now look what happens to our extravascular fluid. Beyond the inflection point in the curve, our extravascular fluid increases precipitously. So what happens if you're hanging out and you're on this curve with this inflection point and you shift that curve to the left? You have patient A who's like hanging out on a normal preload extravascular fluid curve, but we have patient B who's not doing so well. Their curve is shifted to the left. What are the implications of that? Well, the implications of that are for any given preload, the inflection point for our normal patient is different in terms of where it lies in terms of preload to our patient with a curve shifted to the left. So in this patient's case, if we're at point A, it is on one side of the inflection point in our normal patient, but past the inflection point in our abnormal patient. And so what that means is that for the same preload, if we now increase that preload in our normal patient, we're still before that inflection point. So our extravascular fluid won't go up that much. But that same increase in preload for our other patient, we are now past that inflection point. So our extravascular fluid goes up rapidly. What are the kinds of things that change us from patient A to patient B, patient with a normal curve and patient with a curve shifted to the left? Because again, this is talking about the relationship between preload and tissue edema. So what are the things that dictate that relationship? And one of them is not left ventricular systolic function, it turns out. That is not what dictates this relationship between preload and extravascular fluid. What dictates this relationship are three major things. One, capillary permeability. Is this patient in a state of major SIRS, right? Are they having a systemic inflammatory response like sepsis or pancreatitis where they have increased capillary permeability? Two, is their oncotic pressure low? Do they have in-stage liver disease or starvation and their albumin is like one? And three, hydrostatic pressure. Is this patient in renal failure and it just is grossly massively volume overloaded? And again, note that this relationship between preload and extravascular fluid has nothing to do with a patient's intrinsic left ventricular function. Other things dictate this relationship. So, those are the kind of things that help dictate what kind of hydrostatic pressure we're dealing with as an external pressure on our capillaries. Okay, our next external pressures are more obvious. We have our pericardial and thoracic pressures. And this is when we have the, hello, look at me, cardiac tamponade and tension pneumothorax, right? And these are obvious. We all know about these. But I think the thing to keep in mind about these is that sometimes it's super obvious lights and sirens, 
But sometimes it can be subtle. You don't have to have a straight up tension pneumothorax or somebody coding from tamponade to get significant effects from these pressures. Like for example, when we increase the PEEP in a patient who's hypovolemic and we increase the PEEP and their blood pressure drops. Why? That's an external pressure effect. That is an external effect of either our pericardial or thoracic pressures. So those are some of our significant external pressures. Our next significant external pressure is our abdominal pressure pressure. Now, again, sometimes this shows up in a really obvious way, like when somebody has abdominal compartment syndrome. But it can also show up in a way like maybe a patient just has really bad ascites, or maybe they're having an abdominal catastrophe and have somewhat elevated abdominal pressures. So that can also act as an external pressure. Our final external pressure is a really interesting one. This is the pressure that our septal wall can place on our left ventricle. So this gets at this idea of ventricular interdependence, where both ventricles live in the same house. And it's not a stretchy house. The pericardium is not a stretchy kind of thing. So, you know, they compete, basically. They compete for diastolic filling because the more one gets filled, the less the other one gets filled. So imagine for a moment your peristernal short view on echo. And let's say that we give a massive amount of fluid and the right ventricle can't handle it. So the right ventricle starts blowing up. Well, if the right ventricle starts blowing up, then what happens is it puts pressure on the left ventricle. It puts external pressure that's smushing the left ventricle out of the way. And that external pressure means the left ventricle can't fill with anything. So I think about this sort of septal wall pressure and ventricular interdependence and the effect it has on left ventricular filling. I think about that as another external pressure that I need to take into account. All right. So that is our physiology map. That is how I like to think about reframing my mental model of shock around perfusion pressure, because it's getting away from this sort of four-category model, which only really suggests four management strategies, or a model for sort of how do we determine this at the bedside, but we end up still only with the answers of, do I give pressors, inotropes, or volume? And after that, we don't know where we are. To get away from that, I like this sort of, okay, our map-centric, LVEF-centric worldview, that's missing a lot of the picture. We need to think about our forward, back, and external pressures, and then map them in a functional way onto our circulatory system. Because to me, once I start thinking about shock this way, that is how I feel like I can successfully approach one, figure out what's wrong with one of my complicated patients like this, and two, suggesting management interventions to fix it. In the next lecture in this series, we're going to go through and we're going to take a number of shock patients and we're going to go through mapping their particular physiology onto our three pressures physiology map and then talk about how this suggests management interventions. Now, I know this map looks really complicated and I think in some ways it is, but it's like the first time you look at an EKG ever in your life and you're like, there's a lot of squiggles, this seems complicated, but you spend time learning to think about EKGs. And I think especially given the amount of time that we all spend thinking about research and reading journal articles or thinking about, you know, let me update myself on the most recent guidelines, why aren't we not willing to spend the same amount of time learning to think about physiology in a more functional, sophisticated way at the bedside? So stay tuned when we talk about how this plays out for an individual patient. Thanks for listening.